First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. The Sugars are here, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Steve Allman. I'm Cheryl Strayed. This is Dear Sugars. Oh, dear son, won't you please Share some little sweet days with me Hi, Cheryl. Hi, Steve. So we're going to talk about... Rage. Rage. I think of you, Cheryl, as a very positive and upbeat person, but uh, I am. Uh-huh. I, I do. I do. Yeah, and I so am. my question is, are there moments where that has not been the case, where you have been out of control angry? It depends what you mean by out of control. <laughs> um, I do sometimes lose it, and I'll tell you this. I didn't ever really have to consciously think about my anger and how I express my anger until I became a mother and was every day confronted with some outrage Mm -hmm. that puts me in touch with my rage. And I've had to figure out how to manage that. I've had to be mindful of those expressions in a way that I never had to before. Mm -hmm. What about you? Well, I asked that question partly because I, you know, I don't know, four or five months ago, maybe it was a year, um, got into a very difficult situation at at home, a fight, and just uh, smashed a dish in Aaron's presence uh, with one of my kids in the kitchen and just smashed a beautiful bowl that my brother made, oddly Mm. enough. Uh, And it was just a moment where I realized, oh, when rage emerges, I believe it is always guarding sorrow. But more than that, I believe that it's coming from someplace more than what is in that room. Mm-hmm. It's been years in the making. And there are situations that might provoke it. But when it comes from down deep, it's trauma that resides in our past that we haven't somehow contended with. And when I smashed that bowl, I sort of had several days or weeks to say, what happened? Mm-hmm. When that gasket blew, how many years had that engine been rattling and loosening it up? more and more and more. And so the letters we're going to look at today in these instances, what do we do when there are circumstances that have happened in our life, losses that we've suffered that blindside us for which the appropriate human response is rage? Mm -hmm. What do you do then? Yeah. Well, let's get to the letters. Let's do it. Dear Sugars, 
About three years ago, I was standing in my kitchen holding a sonogram picture, which confirmed that after a grace-filled quick round of fertility treatment, I was, in fact, pregnant. I felt pure elation. My husband and I had been together 10 years, and we'd been trying to build a family. Up until then, our marriage was uneventful. We had our ups and downs, but we rarely quarreled and seemed to grow stronger as the years progressed. Fertility treatment had not been excessively stressful. We always had a decent sex life. We traveled. We had adventures. I loved him, and I loved our marriage. But on this evening, as I stood in our kitchen, excited over my pregnancy, he told me he didn't feel as though we were a team. He said he would be relieved if I lost the baby we had just created with great intention, even paying doctors to help us conceive. To say I was in complete shock would be an understatement. In the nine months that followed, all through my pregnancy, my husband didn't commit to wanting or not wanting our marriage. He told me he was leaving me because I hadn't been supportive. When asked for specifics, he blamed me for things like not being enthusiastic about taking naps together or making dinner for his friends. Seriously. My husband insisted there was no one else, though I had my doubts. He moved out. I continued to wonder. Grief and confusion overtook my life. I cried myself to sleep every night and contemplated suicide. After wanting to be pregnant for so long, I was now going through the most difficult time of my life. I wasn't sure what my future had in store, but I knew I couldn't stay in the same city where we'd built a life. I also knew I needed family support, so during my pregnancy, I packed up our house, cared for our pets, worked full-time, and continued to have no idea what happened in my marriage. Our daughter was born, and I gave her the name Grace as a middle name, because she was quite literally my saving grace. I knew I had to go on for her sake, after our daughter was born, my husband tried to reconcile. By chance, I managed to finally find confirmation that he was in fact with another woman, a former office intern ten years our junior. He was lying to me and lying to her. I could not reconcile with someone that destroyed every ounce of self-confidence and trust I once had. I told them reconciliation was not possible. I raised my daughter completely on my own for the first seven months as I built a new life in a new city. Within the year, he had moved to my new location, and within another year, he was remarried and soon a new father. As a result, I have consistent contact with him because we co-parent. I cannot fault him as a parent. After the first seven months during which I parented alone, he became a consistent and engaged father. But despite the fact that he has become a good father and moved on with his life, and despite the fact that it has been almost three years of separation, I cannot, cannot let go of the anger. This is why I write you, Sugars. I don't know how to move on from the anger, and it is bleeding into all the other parts of my life. I can't bear to look my ex in the face when we have to see each other. Our exchanges are quick and emotionless. I know if I look him in the eyes or speak more than necessary, my hate will show through. I think others assume perhaps I still love him, but this is not the case. Instead, I am so angry at him for ruining a time of my life that I had wanted so badly, a happy pregnancy and new motherhood. I hate that his actions caused my life to become something I would have never imagined. There are many good things in my life, and I recognize that, but still, still... I am angry. 
It's an anger that tears at me from the inside, an anger that makes me physically ill at times. I'm so angry that he has moved on so quickly and now has everything I wanted, a family, a house, a good job, when I feel I had to make so many hard choices and give up so much because of his infidelity and abandonment. I hate that I no longer trust other human beings. I hate that I have to share time with my daughter. I envy other families and their happiness. If you knew me, you would never know this because I tuck it deep inside. No one likes an angry, hate-filled person, so I pretend. I talk about single parenting and the joys of independence. Sometimes I do feel this way, but mostly I feel hate and anger and envy. I don't know how to move on. I've tried talking to my best friend, the one person I feel I can confide in truthfully. I've tried writing. I've tried medication. I've tried running. And yet the anger still boils up inside and causes me so much sadness. Sometimes I feel like I'm drowning in anger, and the only thing that pulls me up is my daughter. As she grows, I don't want her to start to sense this anger. I don't want her to hold the burden of being my one source of happiness. How do I forgive and let go and move forward? By outside appearances, I've done all these things, but inside I know this is not true. Inside, I'm still so broken, angry, and sad. Please, help me forgive and move on. Signed, Drowning in Anger. Wow. Drowning in anger. I first want to say you have every right to be angry. I, I think that yeah. anyone reading this letter can feel your pain. You know, you you went through a, a deeply, deeply painful and shocking experience, you know, to have a husband of many years out of the blue announce that he basically isn't there for you and doesn't want to be the father of your child at the moment that you've, you know, finally gotten pregnant. I mean, this is this is really the stuff of a nightmare. And, you know, what you've passed through, I want to say congratulations first. Yeah. You've passed through the crucible that was your pregnancy, the birth of your grace-filled daughter, the breakup. You know, you've survived all of that. And I just want to offer that perspective to, if you can kind of think about what you're feeling and experiencing now as a stage, not a permanent state. And, you know, that first stage was cope do what you need to do. You did it beautifully. And now you're in a different stage. There has been growth. There has been healing, even though you feel so angry still. So much of, of this rage, I think, is about the fact that you have to accept a new version of your life. You're really waking up to the fact that your ex-husband truly did shatter the vision yeah. you had of your life. He shattered this idea you had of the three of you, as, of this happy family, and now you see he has that with someone else, and there you are alone. But, you know, I think that taking on your rage and your anger as intentionally and as logically as you took on, like, how am I going to survive getting through a pregnancy and right. while breaking up? I think that you have to apply that same kind of energy to it. And, and I think that you're going to do that best in a sort of structured environment. I really recommend that you go see a therapist specifically for these issues that you talk about. How do you accept that something so terrible and so, you know, this injustice that happened in your marriage. I keep using this word accept, which I think is deeper than forgiving. This isn't really about forgiving your husband's actions. It's about accepting the life you have now, accepting that this is what your life is and that you can make it beautiful. 
Yeah, and I have to say, Cheryl, that's that's just right, and it's very hard to mm-hmm. write about rage and anger in a way uh, how enveloping it can be because it's shameful. You know, as a society, we tuck it away, and you write about that so precisely. But the line that really just was very painful to read because it was so truthful is, "I hate that I no longer trust other human beings." Mm-hmm. That's damage that's been done because your husband was leading a different life and in a different marriage. And so I think you're grieving. You're grieving the loss of a marriage and the nature of your husband's betrayal and its timing is absolutely devastating. He could not have calibrated a a time that you felt more vulnerable, Mm -hmm. more in need for him to affirm that you were leading the same life, that you were on the same page and that you were together going to, you know, enter this adventure I don't blame you uh, for making the wise decision to say, I'm not going to let this person back in my life. I think that was very courageous to say, no, you're not. I don't care if you want to reconcile. You're a great risk to me. Mm-hmm. And so I've got to keep you away. But the one thing I would consider drowning in anger is toward the end when you talk about, if you knew me, you would never know this because I tuck my anger deep inside. No one likes an angry, hate-filled person, so I pretend. And as I read those lines, I thought, about one of my favorite books, which is the novel, The Woman Upstairs, the Claire Massoud mm-hmm. novel, which you, you have to read, I, yeah. I think, Drowning in Anger, if you haven't, because she's trying to take on how pervasive feminine rage is and how covert it has to be and how much that effort to hide it from view winds up making women feel invisible. I just want to read a little bit from that so you can see what I mean. Claire Massoud writes, We're not the mad women in the attic. They get lots of play one way or another. We're the quiet woman at the end of the third floor hallway whose trash is always tidy, who smiles brightly in the stairwell with a cheerful greeting, and who, from behind closed doors, never makes a sound. In our lives of quiet desperation, the woman upstairs is who we are, without a goddamn tabby or a pesky lolloping Labrador, and not a soul registers that we are furious. We're completely invisible." And that's my worry, drowning in anger, is that you're trying to make your anger invisible. Mm -hmm. And it's an insoluble substance. It's not going anywhere until you face that it has a real basis and and that underneath it and at the center of it is a deep sadness. This is what else Claire Massoud has to say. Above all, in my anger, I was sad. Isn't that always the way that at the heart of the fire is a frozen kernel of sorrow that the fire is trying valiantly, fruitlessly to eradicate? And we have to view rage and anger as a kind of shabby cloak for grief. It always is. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really what it's going to come to in the end is the anger is there to really try to keep at bay the deep sadness. And this is what we do when we feel this deeply wounded. Everybody else is leading an exalted life, and we feel on an island of misery. I think his life is probably much more complicated because if he was so dishonest with you and so out of touch with what was really happening in his life, I guarantee you that's going to show up in his next relationship. But regardless of that, to you it feels like he's getting everything and you get nothing. Yeah. I, too, was troubled by drowning in anger, talking about how no one would know it. You know, right. I appear to be well-adjusted and happy and strong. And just the same way that you've had to rewrite the story of your marriage and who your husband is and who you are, and you know, as a, as a parent, being a single parent, basically by surprise, I, I think it's really important that you revise the story that you're telling about yourself to yep. the world. Yep. And again, I understand why you did it. You had to cope. You had to survive. You had to say, I'm strong. And part of being strong is pretending to the world that you are. But now that strength or that facade of strength and calm 
is not serving you. It isn't weak for you to say to the people around you, I'm just absolutely furious and betrayed and Mm grief-stricken. And in some ways, just saying that much, I think will release a kind of, it's like a pressure valve that will release some of that rage. Right. Because you're not carrying it around, pretending that you feel otherwise. So Steve, we want to keep talking about this subject, but first we're going to go to break. You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Okay, we're back, and we're actually going to give our guest a call now. We're talking to Morgan Jerkins today. She is the New York Times bestselling author of the essay collection, This Will Be My Undoing, Living at the Intersection of Black, Female, and Feminist in White America. Let's give her a call. Let's do it. Hello? Morgan, this is Cheryl Strayed. Hi! Oh, my God! (laughs) (laughs) How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm so excited to be talking to you. Steve Almond is also on the line with me. Hi, Morgan. Hello. Hello. So, Morgan, before we called you up, we discussed the first letter from a woman who is feeling a lot of rage. And when we were thinking about guests for this episode, you really caught our attention, um, especially with your essay in Lenny, that essay, How I Overcame My Anger as a Black Writer Online. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious if you could talk to us and our listeners about that piece and also about, uh, you know, rage and anger in your life and how you've grappled with not letting that take over. Right. Well, it's it's kind of split uh, between professional and personalized. Professionally, rage and anger were very, very profitable. <laughs> what I mean by that is yeah. I, <laughs> I uh, got my start in building an online portfolio uh, through two things. One of it was through writing personal essays because around that time in 2014, editors were hungry for personal essays by women, particularly young women, and the start of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, with the murder of Michael Brown. And so these uh, same editors were looking in their newsrooms and seeing how they didn't have any, really any black or brown people there. And so they went to commission pieces from people outside of those companies. And that's what happened with me. I started to write about myself, but also write about harrowing topics such as police brutality. And when you watch 
video after video of a black person getting shot by the police, it does something to you, mm-hmm. even on a spiritual level, because you start to get really angry. But I also felt like I needed that anger in order to write these very visceral pieces that would strike a chord with someone and make people wake up mm-hmm. to what was happening. But I also think it's hard because, you know, being a, as a black woman, a lot of times our anger can be seen as a spectacle. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, the stereotype of the angry black woman, where even if I'm explaining police brutality, if I don't watch my voice or something, I can just be stereotyped in another way. So while I was uh, building my portfolio, talking about uh, police brutality a lot, I was getting very angry and I had no self-care ritual in mind. There wasn't a time for me to rest because I had to be kept abreast of the news. And because I kept, you know, feeling like a machine and turning out these pieces, I just started to get really tired. It started to affect my dreams. Um, it started yep. to affect my body in terms of like, you know, when you feel rattled, it's like you feel like that adrenaline that courses through your body. It felt like that. Couldn't really bring myself down as quickly as I could, even with naps. I'm an avid napper. <laughs> and then, you know, I also realized in my personal life, I wasn't really the type of person that opened up, period. You know, I basically was the type that I just thought I had to be on uh-huh. all the time, who, you know, only opened up to people when I was doing well. But I never was the type that would tell someone, I'm tired. I'm just not at 100 today. Because I just thought it made me look weak. And it was something that I had right. to work through in therapy to remind me that, you know, you don't always have to be on. You don't always have to be your best and you're, you're human on top of that. And it has to be a, a space where you give yourself downtime. So it took a lot of work, a lot, a lot of personal work, a lot of diversion in terms of my online portfolio to write about other things in order to, you know, help myself take a break and also avoid being pigeonholed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, rage and anger, they were actually a positive propeller for you professionally, but it was also bringing some negative consequences to your personal life because you were so consumed with that one range of feelings. Right. Because, you know, when you're writing about trauma, it's going to take a toll on you, Yeah, especially if you are absorbing information about trauma that can affect you at any time at any place. So you know, it was one of those things where it was helpful because I, I it was it felt like the engine that was giving me the sort of the, the propeller to keep writing these pieces. But at the same time, it's like, you know, you there's a limit to what someone can take when they're reading about trauma. And I knew at a certain point I wasn't gonna be able to keep continuing doing the work that I was doing at the rate that I was doing it, at the capacity that I was doing it, if I kept writing just about black trauma and holding this rage inside and not giving it a proper outlet besides doing it for a paycheck. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's important for drowning in anger. Part of her struggle is she's saying internally, no one likes an angry, hate-filled person, so I pretend. But what she really is saying, I think more specifically, is no one likes an angry, hate-filled woman. And the problem is that we have a culture that polices who can be angry and in what ways. Yes. And in particular, mm-hmm. women, the moment they express anything on the anger spectrum, uh, they become shrill, they become too emotional to function, they are on their period, whatever it is. We have a whole set of rules, which is even more ornate and detailed when it comes to African-American women or women of color. Mm-hmm. Even though they are the objects of a certain kind of systemic set of outrages and atrocities, they can't express any of that. Otherwise, it's immediately pathologized, so it gets trapped inside. And it sounds like it was mm-hmm. almost psychosomatic for you 
that it starts yes, infiltrating yes. your your unconscious. I kept thinking about the James Baldwin line, right? He says, to be an African-American in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in a rage almost all the time. Mm-hmm. But then not only are you in that rage, but you don't get to express any of it. So how's that going to work out? Yeah. And I think the thing is, it's like, you know, to answer the first person who wrote that letter, you know, no one likes an angry person, but you know what? You know, women can be so fixated on being likable all the time. Right. And I think that one of the worst things that, you know, a person can do is to not acknowledge their feelings, even if it's negative, and just say, well, nobody likes me when this is. It's like, well, so what? Yeah. Like, give yourself the kindness and the generosity to allow yourself to acknowledge what you're feeling right now. But I don't think it's a good idea to ignore that anger and to figure out its root. Dear Sugars, I'm a 30-year-old mom of a 20-month-old son, and I just found out I'm expecting my second child. I'm happily married to my high school sweetheart, who I've been with for 12 years. Last year, I lost my mother and best friend to suicide when my son was only five weeks old. It was a tremendously difficult year, one that I have a very hard time summarizing in a few sentences. My mother provided me with the best childhood I could imagine. All of my memories of her are of the strongest, most capable person I've ever met. I feel like my mom was my sounding board for all of my outbursts. She was there for me always when I needed her. She showed me unconditional love that I fear I'll never get from anyone else again in my life. During her last decade, she suffered a major loss, which she never recovered from. She spiraled into a deep depression and never emerged from it. After three suicide attempts, she finally succeeded in what she so deeply wanted just after my son had been born. We'd argued the preceding Christmas, a month or so before my due date. During our argument, she tried to convince me that she did want to live, and she reassured me that it wouldn't happen again, it being another suicide attempt. I told her I knew it would happen again, not now because it was Christmas and not in January because I'd be due soon, but I knew that she would do it again as soon as I was on my feet once the baby arrived. I struggle now with the fact that I may have verbalized just when I felt it was most appropriate for her to commit suicide, and that she felt she had my permission. I have so much anger in me that I've not been able to get out. Having this trauma at the same time as all the postpartum changes has made it very difficult to distinguish what are normal motherhood feelings versus grief. I should note, I do not feel as though I suffer from depression or any other mental disorder. I've done a couple of stints in counseling since my mom died, and I feel like we ran out of things to talk about. I got a clean bill of health, and my impression was that they thought I was grieving appropriately and that I did not necessarily require any more sessions. My good days far outnumber my bad days, but I feel as though I'm not managing how I act during my bad days. I'm writing to you because it's been a year and a half since my mother's death, and I'm so sick of taking out my emotions on my husband. My husband understands me almost as well as my mother did. When I found out she died, the first words out of my mouth were to my husband. I said, I'm sorry this is going to be so hard on you. I'm not going to be easy on you. And it's been true. He's been patient and also an active and willing participant in raising our son. He's always there to talk. He usually says the right things, and he's sensitive to my healing process, and he doesn't put a time limit on it. I can carry on my day feeling completely at peace with my mom's death. Yesterday was a great example. I felt stable, present, energetic, and excited to be newly pregnant. 
My son and I played outside for hours. I felt like being a mom was the coolest job in the world. I had supper ready at a reasonable hour. The house was reasonably clean. The laundry was folded. All was well in the world. When my husband got home, I asked him for a break so I could have a minute to myself. He didn't deny me this, but he got distracted, and I interpreted this as him personally denying me the opportunity to get away from my son for a minute. I started shouting and crying, and I cringed to write. I told him that if I didn't get to complain about having a busy toddler while also being pregnant, I'd go straight to the abortion clinic. This is a pregnancy that we very much wanted and that we're over the moon about. As soon as the words came out, I felt so disgustingly ashamed about what I'd said I couldn't stop crying for an hour. And for what? When we fight, I often threaten divorce, which I do not want. I threaten suicide, which I've not thought seriously about. I say the most hurtful, shocking things, almost as if to show the world how much pain I'm in. My son is getting older, and now he makes comments when I'm crying like, why mommy crying? And he wipes away my tears. This adds a whole new level of the devastation and guilt that I feel after my blow-ups. How can I control my anger? At what point do I no longer have the excuse of my mother's death to validate my bad behavior? How long can I ask my partner to be patient with me? I deeply love my husband, and I wish that I could treat him better. I love my life. I really do. Please help me. Signed, Tantrum Daughter. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Well, Tantrum Daughter, uh, I just want to say that my, my heart goes out to you and your family because that is a tremendous circumstance to be in. And, that, and even that feels like a, an understatement. I mean, you're 30 years old. You have a toddler who's about to enter into the two years old, yeah. right. which I hear is very difficult. Um, is. You're about to have your second child. One of the things that I think you have to do is acknowledge how hard that is. You said something about how you, you, your good days far outnumber the bad days, but then you feel like you don't know how to act on your bad days. But one of the things that I want to ask is, are you acknowledging how bad you feel? Are you acknowledging mm-hmm. them before judging yourself mm-hmm. or not judging yourself? Because I don't know any person in my life that has gone through something like that. And I think you have to give yourself more credit that you're surviving. Yeah. And not mm-hmm. only the fact that you're surviving, but you're taking care of other people. Mm-hmm. But I also want to bring up something else that you said. She showed you unconditional love that you fear that you won't give from anyone else in your life. And I don't want to push too far, but I do wonder if that fear is playing out in the dynamic with your husband. Yep. Because you're saying that, you know, you, you threaten divorce, but you don't want it. You threaten suicide, but you don't, you're not really thinking about that either. And you say these, you know, hurtful things to show the world that you're in pain. And it's like, but you have your husband right there who loves you, obviously. He's been with you this far and he's still there when you wake up in the morning. And I think it's like that fear of like, you know, someone not being able to love you. I don't think your husband's love can take away the place of your mother's, but Sometimes it's good to let people love you in the moments when you're not strong so you can see their capacity. And I think that's what he's trying to do now. But the thing that I would urge you to do is not try to push him away. Yeah. Try not to push him away um, when he's when he's not seeing you at your best, mm-hmm. um, yeah. because that's what a relationship is all about. It's not just about the high moments. It's about those low moments where you really see how strong your relationship is. And he's in it. Yeah. Just trust him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Morgan, I think that's such a good point. And I was struck by that same 
bit because I think in some ways what tantrum daughter you might be doing is actually testing your husband. You know, do you yeah, love me unconditionally? I mean, I, I want to say, too, you know, I want to echo what Morgan said. You First of all, you have every right to feel angry and sad and, you know, th- mm-hmm. that you've just been through a, an, a, an incredibly tumultuous time. I mean, as somebody who my kids are 18 months apart and nothing bad happened to me during that era of my life. But I'll tell you, even just having two kids in such a short span of time as you're doing Tantrum Daughter is a lot. It's a mm-hmm. life changing thing. And mm-hmm. on top of it, you've got this trauma, as Morgan points out, which is devastating and huge. And I don't mean to, in any way, tantrum daughter, diminish your concerns about your rage, because I do think that you're right, that it's something that you should take seriously. And, you know, I think it's pretty wonderful that you are taking it seriously, because what I'm hearing from you is really a lot of concern about your partner, mm-hmm. you know, that you can see that he doesn't deserve to be right. uh, essentially on the other side of these tantrums. But I will say, I think it's also very common for that to be the case. That partner is the person who we trust um, and who we can be our whole selves with. And I, I think that part of starting on this journey for you and changing the way that you express sorrow and rage in your life is, is really also being gentle with yourself, mm-hmm. not holding yourself to such high account and saying, I'm a terrible person because these things come out of my mouth. This is a very human trait. Everyone listening, and I, I can speak for myself and Steve here, we've all said things in, in anger that we didn't mean and that we've had to make amends for and correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I picked up on what you were saying, Morgan, about trauma. It's like thinking about filing cabinets, you know. What we tend to do is when something's traumatic, if you don't deal with it, mm-hmm. you're just jamming those papers into the file cabinet, no filing system at all. And the moment you have to open that file cabinet, all the papers and files go flying. That's what happens when we don't process trauma and deal with it. And so to me, that's mm-hmm. what's happening every time there's a little problem that comes up in your relationship with your husband. It becomes something huge because you're reliving the trauma I think, the you know, Didion has that great line about how grieving brings us into the province of magic in childhood. When I read the line about my mom was my sounding board for all my outbursts, there's a part of me that thinks, oh, so you're trying to bring your mother alive again. And you think if you throw tantrums, she's going to reappear to you. Mm-hmm. I think it's difficult for survivors, particularly of suicides, to reckon with the basic idea that the person who they loved so much, who they needed so much, chose to leave them. And we'll do anything to try to get them back, even if that involves sort of throwing tantrums. I know it sounds crazy, but I really think that's the way our subconscious operates when it's somebody who's so core and elemental to you. Mm -hmm. And the sad thing is that you still have a right to your tantrums, Mm -hmm. but your mother, to some extent, is the cause of them and not the cure. You expressly said to your mother, you know, I'm afraid that you are going to take your life, that you're going to do harm to yourself uh, just as soon as I'm on my feet. And one way of interpreting it is that you gave her permission. But another way of interpreting that set of actions is she hung that on you. And Mm -hmm. I want to say that the nature of grieving a suicide and particularly a mother who is the central unconditional loving force in your life is a trauma that you don't just get over in a series of months or years. You're having to deal with that for the rest of your life, and that's really heartbreaking. Yeah, Morgan, I wanted to ask you, I mean, obviously, I'm a writer, you're a writer, Steve's a writer, and and we do this 
not just for catharsis, but because we want to publish our work and, you know, we're professional writers. But I will say that one side benefit of being a writer is the cathartic experience of getting words on the mm-hmm. page. And I'm going to guess, Tantrum Daughter, that it was even helpful for you to just to write us this letter and, right. and put to paper your feelings. And I'm wondering, Morgan, if you could speak to that aspect of writing in your life. Right. Writing is so cathartic for me because I know it's the one place where I am not going to be interrupted. Right. <laughs> um, I'm going to sit there and I am going to write down all the feelings that I'm feeling and no one's staring at me, no one's editing and saying, maybe you should elaborate more. I have complete control and there's no interruption. So I like writing for that reason. But I will say, and I know you didn't ask this question, it can be a problem because, you know, I think it's intimacy is also being in the moment with someone where you can't control everything, Mm -hmm. um, where you can't edit and backspace and go back. You just have to keep talking. So I had to learn that, you know, writing writing can be cathartic, but also make sure that when you are in front of people, you are being open as well. Don't just rely on a Google Doc to be um, the only only thing with which you have some, some form of intimacy. Right. I think it's a channel, though. I mean, I guess we've sort of talked through the emotional aspects of Tantrum Daughter's letter. I'm trying to figure out, like, what are the practical things that we can offer Tantrum Daughter to do? And, and when I think about what in my life have I done with the rage, one thing is channel it. And, and writing has been a great channel to allow that anger just to, you know, you, you can release, you can say things that you wouldn't want to say to somebody else, you know, just get them on the page. But also, you know, I think that's such a great point, Morgan. It's like thinking about how do I channel this when I'm face to face in this situation with my husband? And that has everything to do, I think, with mm-hmm. like developing skills around, you know, this is what we call anger management. And that takes some intention, tantrum daughter. I wouldn't, I, I think that therapy would be very useful for you in a very practical way coming up with an actual script. You know, what do you say mm-hmm. when you start to feel out of control? And this is how anger management works, is you actually just learn a new way of expressing those dark feelings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One other thing that you've expressed, and you have this in common with our first letter writer, Drowning in Anger, is, oh my God, I have to keep it together because otherwise my kids will pick up on my true feelings. And what I would say to you is, you must let your children know what your true feelings uh-huh. are, not in a way that's out mm-hmm. of control and frightening, but you have to let them know that this is who their parent is because they know the truth. Kids are not sophisticated, but they are far more absorbent emotionally and psychologically mm-hmm. than adults. They don't, they don't have those defenses up. So your child is going to pick up on your sorrow, on your rage, on all of it. He hears or she will hear uh, the discord with your husband until such a time as you really do deal with how devastated you feel about the events that have transpired in your life. Until you reckon with those things, don't hide it from your kids. Don't hide it from your husband even. If you feel out of control, you have to be able to say, I am having that feeling where rage is building up and I literally can't control it. Help me control it. Because otherwise you're left doing that work alone. And I would I would argue it's impossible to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Modeling a healthy way of dealing with those difficult emotions like rage and and anger is far more important than modeling 
uh, you know, suppressing them. <laughs> like I sort of, okay, we're going to fake it, kid, because I think that that, you know, you're exactly right that kids absorb the emotional truth of any moment. They feel what we feel. Yeah. You know, I say all the time to writing students, rage is a red lesson. Mm-hmm. It, it, if you are enraged about something, there's always deep meaning in that thing. It's not incidental. It's almost always guarding some kind of sorrow that Mm -hmm. is just at the moment too painful to go at directly. But that doesn't mean it will always be too painful. Right. And I think in both, really our advice to both of these letter writers today is about going on a journey to uncover that pain. And when we do that, we almost always learn something new about not only the suffering we've endured and the hard things that have happened, but about our own strength. Mm -hmm. And that's what this is ultimately about. Both Tantrum Daughter and Drowning in Anger, you're going to have to accept what's unacceptable to you. You're going to have to accept, Tantrum Daughter, that you have to live your life without your mom. And she died in a way that really is is incredibly complex and heartbreaking. And that's going to be true always. And what I know is that you are right now learning how to carry that truth. Yeah. And you're enraged that you have to. But what I know is that you'll be able to someday. Same with you, Drowning in Anger. It's that same kind of thing where it's like, okay, this isn't the story I wanted. Now I have to look at this guy. I have to interact with this guy who betrayed me so profoundly. And But what I want to say to you is you can and you will and you have. Mm -hmm. And I wish you both luck on that journey. I sure Mm -hmm. do. Well, Morgan, thank you so much for joining us and, and helping illuminate these questions about rage and anger. We really appreciate you being on the show. You sure do. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Have a good day, you two. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Dear Sugars is produced by the New York Times in partnership with WBUR. Our producer is Alexandra Lee Young. Our editor and managing producer is Larissa Anderson. Our executive producer is Lisa Tobin. And our editorial director is Samantha Hennig. We recorded this show at Talkback Sound and Visual in Portland, Oregon, with our engineer, Josh Millman. Our mix engineer is Brad Fisher. Our theme music is by Wonderly, with vocals by Liz Weiss. Please find us at nytimes.com slash dearsugars. You can send us your letters at dearsugars at nytimes.com. That's dearsugars, plural, at nytimes.com. Or leave us a voicemail on our hotline at 929-399-8477. And please check out our column, The Sweet Spot, at nytimes.com slash the sweet spot. The Sweet Spot.